Hello, I'm Elena DelVal, and this is the HispanicNPR.com podcast. My guest today is Talia Henkel, Ph.D., who is a cancer content creator at Sparrow. We will discuss cancer. Talia received her doctorate degree in immunology at John Hopkins University, where she studied oncology, virology, and cancer immunotherapies. Talia is a content creator for Sparrow, highlighting cancer research by creating digestible articles designed for non-experts to easily understand. Talia, welcome. Thank you so much. So happy to be here today. This last part, easy to understand, I think appeals to a lot of us because cancer is such a broad and complicated topic. So why don't we start with the first point of the discussion. When we say cancer for purposes of our discussion today, what are we referring to exactly? Perfect. Yes, I'd love to start here because honestly, it is a very complex topic. So essentially, us as humans, we ha- our bodies are, consist of trillions of individual cells that work together in amazing, astonishing harmony that are all dictated by our genetic code, our DNA. And our bodies, like all life, are very dynamic. Every day, without us knowing, our cells are replicating, multiplying, dying, changing, traveling, adapting to maintain our status quo so we can live our lives. And each of our cells of the trillions must obey thousands of rules to perform its job correctly. For example, these rules may dictate what type of cell they are, like an eye cell or a liver cell, how long they should live, where they should live, etc. So that's our context of kind of framing what our bodies are. So what happens in cancer? What happens to make our cells cancerous? So for whatever reason, perhaps it could be a UV light ray or a hereditary condition, one of your cells in your body will manage to break enough of the rules dictated by our DNA. In other words, we say mutates to grow unchecked and out of harmony with the rest of the cells in our body. And something I feel is not, you know, common knowledge is that the pathway a cell takes to becoming cancerous is one completely random and unique to each person, each individual, each cancer that exists. And this is important, and I highlight this, because this helps us understand why cancer is so difficult to treat. One of, as a researcher, you know, meeting people out and about, one of the biggest questions I would receive was, you know, isn't there a cure for cancer anyway that's just like being hidden by pharma that just wants us to, you know, just keep paying, which, you know, not speaking on pharma's intentions, um, I can say that the issue with cancer is that it's just wildly difficult to treat because each single cancer is unique. And so trying to find treatments for um, that work for everyone um, is is challenging, especially because our cancerous cells chemically and structurally closely resemble our healthy cells, meaning that it's particularly challenging to develop treatments that specifically target tumors while keeping healthy cells safe versus thinking like we're trying to target a bacteria or a virus where they structurally, chemically look very different. So this is one of the reasons why cancer treatments um, like chemotherapies have a lot of side side effects. So that's kind of my overview of what cancer is and how it forms. And then, of course, when we think of, you know, breast cancer or, you know, liver cancer or 
skin cancer, just talks about the type of cell that ended up going on this mutation journey to go grow out of harmony with the rest of the cells in our body. I think what I heard you say is that in a very general way, cancer cells are cells that look like regular cells, but that are reproducing out of control the way they're not supposed to. Is that, is that a fair description? Exactly. So, I mean, in they are our own body cells that have figured out a way to stop being ruled by the rules that they're supposed to follow. So what the challenge is for cancer researchers is to find defining characteristics on cancer cells that are unique to only cancer cells, but not on normal, healthy cells. And there are differences that exist, and those are what researchers and scientists take advantage of when trying to cure cancer, but it's difficult because overwhelmingly they're, they come from us. So there are more similarities and differences. Before we go further into the topic, I should have asked you at the beginning, do you have a conflict of interest that you want to share with us and, or tell us about your uh, funding sources, if you will? Um, no, I do not have any conflicts of interest. I, um, I work for Sparrow, and our whole brand is to promote science information without a political or pharmaceutical company agenda and just about providing trustworthy sources of science directly from researchers to people who are interested in. Um, so beyond so my affiliation with, with Sparrow, that just, um, that just uh, pays me to uh, create trustworthy content. No, I don't have any conflicts of interest. So essentially, Sparrow is a subscription-based source of research-based information and you are one of the creators of content for Sparrow. Is that correct? Um, actually, it's a free daily email digest. So every single day, Sparrow sends out, uh, um, there's different topics we report on. I report on cancer, um, but it's just a free subscription service to um, an email, a three-minute digest um, of a timely science topic. So I write about cancer, but we also have experts that write about mental health, reproductive health, and environment. I'm looking at the Sparrow.Science FAQs page, and it says that you can sign up for a 14-day trial for free, but if you want access to the content, you have to pay a $19 a month or an annual subscription of $100. Ooh, well, we have since changed our business model to being a free sub email digest system, and I think that's just a remnant of our old, um, our older business model. It's changed. We're a small startup, so it's changed. Um, we changed from a subscription-based service to this free um, daily digest module. Um, so I think we just need to update the website, and I should probably tell our team to do that. Okay. Well, I'm glad I asked because I was a little confused. <laughs> no, that's true. That's good. That, that is confusing, and I think really since we've been moving towards email, we haven't been um, spending as much time working on the website, so that's, that's probably that. Thank you for clarifying that. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's talk a little bit more about cancer and how it comes about, what it means. One of the first questions that comes to my mind is, how is it that there are some people that are much more prone to, for lack of a better word, so that they're likely to have inherited a tendency or a high risk to get cancer, what is what is the reason for that? 
So there, so the reason people get cancer, you know, it is just a random chance occurrence that one of your cells will break enough of these rules to be able to grow on its own agenda and out of sync. So some people have certain genetic predispositions that will, for example, make it so that their cells can mutate more easily or that they are um, not as prone to die when they develop a mutation or perhaps they um, have, you know, an issue with their hormones that make it so um, their cells can grow more quickly than another person's, which can help them become cancerous. So cancer, the average number of mutations in a cancer, uh, in a cell to become cancerous is around 100. This number can vary greatly depending on the type of cancer. But essentially, it's an accumulated risk. So it could come from genetic predispositions, uh, like you mentioned, but also could be from environmental conditions, exposure to, for example, you know, if you're a coal miner and a lot of um, you know, pollution in your lungs that can cause damage over time that your cells aren't able to repair, or you know, not wearing sunscreen and being um, exposed to the sun a lot um, can... UV light can cause these mutations. And sometimes it's just bad luck. I, you could probably argue every single cancer is bad luck, um, but um, it's just an accumulation of probabilities. And some people have certain genetic predispositions that kind of tilt them towards cancer more. Um, but because it's so complex, and I said there's like thousands of rules our cells need to follow, pretty much any any mix match of any of those thousands of rules that kind of tilt towards cancer could lead to it. Um, so again, kind of hammering down the point that each cancer is unique and randomly formed. And we can't, you can't just where we're at right now, we can say, oh, you have an elevated risk, but you can't say 100% that you're going to get a cancer and where and why and when and all of that. What about this? I, I think as you were saying that there are a number of factors that could increase your risk. So it could be genetics, it could be environmental, it could be something that you do like being exposed to UV light, to sunlight, or bad luck. What about something like dairy? There are those who say that dairy is full of the hormones of the parent animal to the baby animal, and they're not meant for human consumption because they can lead to cancer. What are your findings on that? I have um, never heard of, I haven't heard of a dairy risk for cancer in the literature. I, I haven't looked about it, so I prefer not to comment since I, I don't really um, have any data on it. My area of expertise is cancer immunology, so really thinking about cancer and the immune system, and that seems more like cancer and nutrition, which is more of an epidemiological field of study. So my, um, my focus has been, you know, working um, in laboratories, conducting research, um, you know, in a very different context than these nutritional studies are likely um, conducted in. So I'm just not familiar with that field. Um, I, I, yeah. I'm sure whatever data is out there is very interesting, but I just I just don't like to comment on things that before I have a chance to um, to read about them. Of course, is there anything that you can share in relation to geography and cancer? So pockets of population, 
by geography or otherwise where cancer or certain types of cancer are more prevalent in the area that you're comfortable with? Again, this de this definitely looks at cancer from like an epidemiological standpoint again. Um, so I, I have heard that, you know, um, areas with um, like higher air pollutants and stuff like that can lead to higher rates of, um, of cancers in the, um, honestly, I, I don't have numbers off the top of my head and I would really hate for, I'd really hate to have it on record that saying something that I don't have full confidence in. I, I think that there is um, probably a link between pollution and lung cancer and cancers of the GI tract. But, um, like, for example, something I do know a lot about is um, my, one of the, what I specialized in was HPV-associated cancers, and those can be um, prevented by the HPV vaccine um, called Gardasil, and cervical cancer um, and head and neck cancers are... Um, all caused by HPV, and also cervical cancer is a higher risk among Latino patients. Um, so I would say that that can be due caused to certain cultural um, or economic barriers sometimes. Um, and I just would take the opportunity to say that um, a way to prevent a certain type of cancer is to get this Gardasil vaccine, and it's FDA approved up to 45 in both men and women, and um, is definitely a good idea. Um, but it's not based on geography; it's um, it's a worldwide issue. But um, it's one that can be prevented, and one that deserves attention. What does HPV stand for? Uh, human papillomavirus. And you said that it's specific to cervical head and neck cancer and it, that there is a higher risk or a higher prevalence among people of Hispanic heritage? Uh, yes. Do you have yes. any numbers you can share? I think share? In, the United, in the United States, I think it says here that um, Latino women are 1.6% times as likely to develop cervical cancer and 1.3 times as likely to die from it over white women, non-Latino white women. And what is the source of that data? It's Advancing the Science of Cancer in Latinos um, by uh, Melie Ramirez. Is that a book or a journal? I'm it's, it's, um, this is a, a book published by Emilia Ramirez, who um, works in um, uh, Institute for Health Promotion Research at UT Health San Antonio, Texas. And do you, what was the publication date? Um, November 2019. Okay, so that is fairly recent. So we're probably looking at data that's maybe 10 years old. Is that about right? Um. Let's see, this is from 2015, um, but decided 2015, yeah, so a little less than 10 years old, from uh, the National Center for U.S. Health Statistics. Okay, and uh, since you are recommending the vaccine, uh, tell us a little bit about the side effects of the vaccines, what can happen if you take the vaccine? in addition to it preventing the cancer, what other possible side effects? I've heard some people complain about muscle soreness. Um, aren't, you know, it's a, a vaccine that goes into your muscle, so it can kind of hurt um, for a couple days. Um, but that's really, um, that's like the main, the main uh, side effect. It's very safe, it's, um, implemented all over the world. Um, and... 
Yeah, there's not um, really any health side effects. If you have like a, you know, similar to with the COVID vaccine, if you'd been historically had bad reactions to vaccines, you know, maybe bring that up with your doctor. But if not, um, you know, right now it's a three dose regimen, um, but actually they're um, doing trials all over the world and um, the, the consensus is in the field that that might change, that, that you might not need three doses, but um, um, yeah, bring it up with your um, primary care physician and they will have you covered. Tell us a little bit more about the immune system and cancer. How are these two connected, interlinked, et cetera? Exactly. Wonderful. So we often think of our immune system as working to protect us from and cure infections like viruses or bacteria, bacteria. but its role is actually much broader. Our immune system is working not just to find infected cells, but healthy cells versus unhealthy cells. So that could mean cells, you know, wounds that need to be cleaned up or cells that have been damaged by pollution. And our immune system is all over our body. There's a bunch of different cell types that each have distinct roles. And they all work together to make sure that all of our trillions of cells in our body stay up to snuff. Um, so you can think of the immune system as our quality control system in our body. And one of the things that it also works to prevent us from is cancer. So then the question becomes, how does cancer form if the immune system is watching? And so that is what cancer immunologists like myself have really dug in to um, learn about in these in this field has totally blown up in the last um, 30 years or so. So when we think about cancer and our immune system, cancer immunologists' favorite immune cell is called the T cell. So T cells get their name from the organ where they mature and develop called the thymus, which is a little organ that sits right in front of the heart. And T cells um, are among, one, you know, one of the many different types of immune cells that are in our bodies. But they're cancer immunologists' favorite because they have the ability to recognize damaged, infected, or cancerous cells and then inject them with the cellular equivalent of poison and kill them. And that's really exciting to us because one of the biggest challenges for cancer researchers is to develop cancer treatments that kill cancer cells while keeping healthy cells safe. But killer T cells are our immune system's tools to do that for us without us even knowing or even trying. They're able to just kill infected cells or just cancerous cells or whatever um, and keep other healthy cells safe. And what's even better is they are, you know, since they're cells in our body and our immune system travels all over our body, they, in theory, if they if we could get them to do their job a little bit better, they already have the skills to move around our body and kill, in theory, tumors at distant sites, which is exciting because once cancer spreads from its original site of origin, it becomes much more difficult to treat. So scientists are really excited about the ability of empowering and emboldening T cells to work better to treat advanced stage cancers or the ones that have spread uh, because those are proving the most difficult to treat nowadays. Um, so essentially how T cells work is similar to how it would kill, work against cancer. 
sorry, I'll start again. Essentially how a T cell works against cancer is similar to how it would work against a virus infected cell. It will recognize some suspicious or mutated um, signals on this cell, then clone itself to build an army that will kill every cell in our body that harbors that dangerous cancerous mutation or that virus. So then the question is, what goes wrong in cancer so that these T cells aren't doing their job anymore? And then what can scientists do to make T cells more potent against cancer? So what we've learned is cancer, as I said, in order for it to form, has to break all these different rules in, that are normal for the rest of our cells in our body to follow. And one of them is usually it develops an enhanced ability to mutate. So it can pretty much shape shift to avoid all of the different fail safes like our immune system that our body has in place to keep our cells in line. So we have learned that about a bunch of different ways that cancer hides from T cells. Most healthy cells on their surface, they'll express these, you know, essentially coat themselves with these signals that say, oh, I'm in danger. Look, I have a, I have a mutation or I have a virus. And then T cells on their surface can, can see that and then that signals them to kill it. So that's one way. And then another way is we find out, and this is um, leading into some of the most exciting advances in cancer immunology, is we have learned that cancers will coat themselves with these molecules called checkpoints that will turn the T cells off. So even if a T cell has recognized this cancerous cell and is on a mission to kill it, it will run into one of these checkpoints that on a cancer cell and that will deactivate the T cell. So a lot of times we can see in um, certain cancers an army of T cells that surrounds the tumor and um, but they're all deactivated and the tumor can continue to grow and survive despite this army that exists. This has led to this new field of drug called checkpoint inhibitors, um, which will block cancers from stopping T cells from doing their job. And I do wanna mention quickly that, you know, I think the question could come up. So why do these checkpoints exist if they're promoting cancer? Well, they're actually very totally natural and normal because, as I said, when our immune system recognizes something as dangerous, it will build an army to kill it. But we need this army to go away once the threat is done. And that's where checkpoints come in because our immune system is spitting out all of these toxic substances that will kill these cells, you know, which we want dead. But if it's left unchecked, then it can cause problems. And there are a bunch, you know, if you think of, you've heard of autoimmunity, you know, that's problems where your immune system is going out of control and it's not helping you. So checkpoints are a totally natural, good system our immune system has in place. It's just a process that cancer will manipulate and take advantage of to help it on its own mission to grow out of harmony with our body. Well, for the average person listening, I think that one of the first questions that pops to mind is you talk about our body and its defenses, the T cells and other ways that the bodies defend themselves, is 
what does this mean for the average person who is busy, moms looking after their kids, people going to work, you know, all of the issues that we have in our day-to-day -day lives. What importance do these systems have and does it mean anything concrete to the average person? Is, is there something that they need to be doing to boost their immune system, for example? Well, actually, we're not quite there yet with the, um, you know, what, what does an average person need to do with, for their life? I guess how I personally view it is it's all about understanding what risks are and risk mitigation and how comfortable you are with that. That being said, everything, you know, boils down, you know, you, I think we all did this during the, you know, quarantine times of the COVID-19 pandemic is, okay, what are factors that will, you know, will increase my risk for being exposed to COVID or in this case, being exposed to cancer? Um, and, you know, how comfortable am I taking these risks or not. I think what it all boils down to, and the more I dig into the immune system, it just comes back to the general recommendations of, you know, eat healthy, not processed foods, and exercise, and, you know, try to breathe fresh, clean air, and, um, you know, Basically, going down to that, oh, mitigating stress, you know, practicing, you know, whatever, any st stress reduction uh, tactics that are helpful for you. I like mindfulness, um, for example. All of those things do wonders because stress impacts your immune system, you know, pollutants, all of that stuff that impacts your your life and that will kind of tilt the balance one way or the other. That being said, you, there are people who live the least healthy lives and never get cancer. And there are people who live the most healthy lives and get cancer. So you cannot 100% um, force an outcome either way. Um, but, you know, you can try to set yourself up for success by living a healthy lifestyle. And yeah, just for caring for your immune system is pretty much just caring for yourself and your body because your your immune system is just trying to keep everything in check. And that many of those measures that you're describing are in check with a lot of what we're hearing about uh, some of the communities in the country. Uh, I'm looking at a an AP News article from today that says there is a racial split on COVID-19 that endures even as restrictions ease, and yet that Black and Hispanic Americans are especially likely to be worried. Uh, so some of these measures allow you to look after your health by using natural means, if you will, how what but what importance would you say that those measures have when we're talking about cancer, which I realize is very different from COVID, but it gives you an idea of where people's sentiments are? Well, from what I know is minority communities in the United States tend to be like disproportionately um, economically dis disadvantaged and, you know, exposed, which adds in a lot of stress. Um, and also due to the racial disparities in the health of among healthcare professionals and, you know, leading to cultural um, barriers um, to, you know, optimized healthcare in the, you know, U.S. health system. You know, a lot of those factors don't lend well to having our healthcare system promote overall health and stress-free lives because of people are working, you know, crazy hours 
a week and maybe not, you know, that's going to make a much more stressed per human, which, you know, is, you know, when your body's exposed to a lot of stress, a lot of physical health, mental health issues can arise. So I think it's a, you know, there's a lot of systemic issues that tie into disparities and then into physical health issues that like, where do you address it on an individual level? Like how much can a person who's, you know, overworked and underpaid address their, you know, stress levels in their bodies that might predispose them to higher risk for a bunch of different ailments? You know, that's tough. Um, so, um, but one of the efforts in um, medical science is to increase the uh, diversity among the not only um, you know healthcare professionals, but also of the data that we have that we use to report all of these findings and risk levels and all of this stuff, um, because. For example, in the cancer um, database that kind of accumulates all of the different, you know, mutations and data that people get from cancer, even though Hispanics are about 20% of the U.S. population, only 3% of the data is from, from people who identify as Latino. And as we know, you know, Latinos are far from a homogenous, you know, discrete group of people. They're from a bunch of different cultural, ethnic origins, and um, a lot of different, you know, socioeconomic statuses, all different factors that can lend to cancer risk. So right now, we don't even have good data to talk about different, you know, risk levels, things, what each person can do. We don't have that data because they're not represented in our healthcare system to, for us to make conclusions that we can share. So that's actually a very big um, push right now is to educate physicians and have culturally competent ways of communicating um, with Latino patients to get them involved in clinical trials and stuff like that to get more data so that we can provide more concrete tips for, okay, what are problem areas? What are behaviors and risks and things that are leading to increased risks for um, whatever, you know, cancer um, and, um, you know, but yeah, we need the data first in order to be able to make those uh, suggestions. What are checkpoint inhibitors and uh, what is the relationship between the checkpoint inhibitors and cancer? So as I said, um, our cancerous uh, cells, they will coat themselves with these checkpoints that turn off the army of T cells that comes in to kill the tumors. So um, checkpoint inhibitors are just drugs that have been made to block checkpoints from working. So it's kind of like a double negative here. The checkpoints stop T cells and the checkpoint inhibitors stop the checkpoints, thus activating the T cells to do their job. And in just doing that, we have seen unprecedented advancements in treating advanced stage cancer. So patients who are not responding to um, treatments were able to have a lot of success, like in reducing their tumor sizes and sometimes completely disappearing their tumors. Um, in particularly in in skin cancer patients, melanoma patients, so like 31 to 44 percent of those patients have had success with um, a checkpoint blockade. One of the checkpoints is called PD1, programmed death one. 
um, if you look up checkpoints, it will be one of the first ones you see. Um, and also has been very successful in lung cancer and renal cell carcinoma patients. Um, but right now, um, since, you know, I said the rates of success are 31 to 40%, lung cancer about 20%, renal cell car carcinoma, which is in your kidney, um, around 20% as well. So scientists are looking for ways to make these checkpoint blockades or essentially these drugs that block um, checkpoint inhibitors, checkpoint blockade or checkpoint inhibitors, the same, um, make them work better. And so, unfortunately, with these, because they're not directed against one specific T cell that has its, you know, we're not only targeting a T cell that has, a, that we know for sure is specific for cancer. Essentially, what we do is we hope that the person has T cells that are being turned off by these checkpoints. Um, and so, kind of back to a previous point I had, is these drugs can have some pretty serious autoimmune side effects because some of the T cells that we have in our body are supposed to be off because they have done their job and our immune system said, okay, enough of you, you know, putting up a checkpoint so that you don't, you know, out too many toxic substances. So even though it'll make cancers go away, sometimes it can have, um, you know, gastrointestinal issues or rashes, skin reactions, and some of these reactions can be life-threatening. So this is why we're very much in the course right now of trying to figure out which patients are most likely to benefit from these treatments and mitigating the potential for side effects. Again, looping back here, the need for increased data for minority populations um, for us to work with because um, we need data in order to figure out themes about what works and what doesn't. And we're still trying very hard to figure that out but without representative samples from, you know, diverse populations like our world is composed of, um, it's hard to make reliable hypotheses about what works and what doesn't. What we have found so far is that um, cancers that have a lot of mutations, as I said, the average number of cancers mutations in a cancer is around 100, but there are some, like, especially ones that are um, for, uh, that are exposed to UV light or cigarette smoke, those cause a lot of mutations because it's constantly, you know, being exposed to DNA damaging substances. Um, so another thing that you could do in your everyday life, put on sunscreen don't smoke. <laughs> um, and those, however, because they cause so many mutations, these provide a lot more of those danger signals that I talked about that T cells can recognize, thus increasing the probability that you'll have more T cells that have been turned off by cancer, by their checkpoints. And Thus, when they're turned back on from these checkpoint inhibitors, there's a higher likelihood of success. So that's one way, um, one sifting through the data, something uh, we found to predict a likelihood, a high number of mutations. The other things that they'll look for is if the, they'll take a tumor, they'll take a biopsy of the patient's tumor and they'll look to see if there are a significant number of these T cells near the tumor, which is also a sign that, you know, there's an, a thwarted effort to kill the tumor. 
underway that also can help predict success. And then thirdly, making sure that these tumors actually have these checkpoints all over them because not every single tumor uses this method to avoid being killed. So those are the three general guidelines, the mutation, how many mutations the tumor had, if T cells are present, and if checkpoints are present, that scientists are looking for to see if a patient should qualify for these treatments, again, because, um, you know, the, the likelihood for potentially life-threatening side effects, you know, of course, advanced stage cancers are life-threatening in their own right, so unfortunately, there's not other options for these patients at this time. But that being said, with response rates being, you know, maximum 40%, um, these these therapies right now are very expensive, probably, you know, price tag around $50,000. So there's another big ethical concern beyond side effects of the economic burden for a treatment that might not work and might cause side effects. That being said, this is where we're at with this therapy, and this is the best we've come up so far, and there's just a very active field of research uh, going on to try to figure out how to make these better and what combinations of therapies and what cancer types, what groups of people will most likely have success. So that's a very active area of research right now. We've seen that sometimes when we have too much of a good thing, there can be some pretty bad consequences. And what I'm thinking of right now are the problems that have come up with antibiotics and the overuse of antibiotics, broad-spectrum antibiotics specifically. Is this a risk with these treatments that you're describing? Well, with cancer, similarly to bacteria, that so bacteria, they also replicate very quickly and they are able to develop resistance to treatment because they themselves can develop mutations that allow them to resist these treatments. So that's exactly what actually we see with pretty much every cancer therapy because, of course, we haven't found the golden or the silver bullet, which we probably won't find, as I said, because each cancer is unique and finding themes across cancers is, it's just not the way they biologically form, like to, to have one cure for all. But that's exactly what you're touching on the issue is, well, suppose we release all of the T cells to kill the cancers that have checkpoints. Well, then, if it doesn't do it, if it doesn't kill every single tumor cell right away, you know, there's a chance that some tumor cells will be resistant to treatment. And just like a bacterial infection, those are the ones that are going to take over, and they're going to be resistant to this treatment. So then doctors and researchers are left with, okay, well, what now? And that is, that's exactly the issue pretty much every cancer treatment um, suffers from is the fact that tumors are a moving target and you have to kill them all quickly and kind of in a single blow before they have the chance to mutate and become resistant to whatever treatment. Where can our listeners get additional information on cancer in general and these treatment options that you've been discussing with us, other than obviously uh, Sparrow.Science, where you are. Um, are there other trustworthy, reputable, peer-reviewed sources or non-peer-reviewed, if you think there are some worth looking at, uh, that you can share with us? Sure, yeah. So on in my... Um my digest that I create for Sparrow, I do try to link 
all back to the primary literature that I'm finding. So I don't, there are a lot of great peer-reviewed um, sources out there um, for uh, um, to talk about all of this stuff. What I think is that they're not necessarily digestible to the average person. Um, what I would say is I would go to um, American Cancer Society. Um, they have pretty good patient resources. Um, also, um, the National Cancer Institute, NCI, they also have um, a decent government website that talks about um, some cancer basic basics um, stuff that are more uh, digestible for the average person. Um, and yeah, I, I, I like to stick to uh, well-regarded foundations like the American Cancer Society or um, uh, government websites because they're less likely to be funded by pharmaceutical companies, uh, which is a lot of the medical information that is out there today. Um, and I am just wary of that because they have obviously uh, – financial motive for promoting whatever whatever they're saying um, and so yeah th those would be my, my first my first go-to sites the NCI or American Cancer Society well doesn't the American Cancer Society have a financial motive as well since they also require funding or are they not receiving any funding from the pharmaceutical companies Oh, I actually, I don't know what their funding um, uh, structure is. Um, I'm, I, I just have seen some of their patient resources and thought they were well done personally in, um, you know, in my Google searches. And, um, but I don't have any um, tie to them or anything. I've just... Um, um, I've, I've just thought that they, they do um, a good job kind of breaking down different cancer information um, for patients. Um, so, yeah, but, but, but I, I, um, I'm not actually very familiar with them. Uh, but they, they are uh, pretty well, well regarded. Talia, thank you for joining us from Baltimore, Maryland. Thank you so much, Elena. I really appreciate it. And to our audience, you have been listening to Talia Henkel, Ph.D., who is a cancer content creator at Sparrow, who discussed cancer. To propose a guest for the show, you can email me directly at editor at hispanicmpr.com. That's editor at hispanicmpr.com.